Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. John Newton was a pastor, a writer, and a teacher, and a musician, and he wrote one of the most famous hymns we know, which is, anyone know John Newton? Amazing Grace. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, but before that, He had some other experiences, and in fact knew by personal experience what he later wrote when he said, God's strength becomes evident when under pressures beyond our strength to sustain. Prior to writing one of the most famous hymns in English hymnody, prior to becoming a pastor, prior to becoming a Christian, At the age of 22, John Newton was a sailor. He was captain of an 18th century merchant ship, a ship filled with rich cargo carrying gold, ivory, lumber, and as was common in those days, slaves from West Africa. It was on a particular voyage where John Newton came to know what it is to have pressures beyond your strength to sustain. He was on a ship returning from West Africa when a great gale force wind struck him and a storm caught them up and they were 22 days from being even close to shore. The waves crashed, the ship lodged, the timbers creaked and began to tear away and the crew was panicked and trying relentlessly to remove water and pump it out. Newton clung to the helm. And it was in that moment that Newton remembered the faith that his mother had taught him. It was in that moment when he remembered the faith he had abandoned. He said, I am unfit to live and I'm unfit to die. Most of his life up to that point was filled with sin, filled with turning away from the Lord, gambling, going after women, drinking and partying with sailors. And it was in that moment where his life was on the line and he figured he was not going to survive that the Lord confronted him with something he didn't want to admit right away that he was not in control, and someone else was. His conversion began there, but it took a while for him to even begin to learn what it meant to be a Christian. And as time went on, he became a pastor, and he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, and he knew what Amazing Grace really meant. Time and time again, the scriptures return to this theme of a storm, a storm that represents God. God is often pictured in connection with storms, winds, clouds. Psalm 104 says that he rides on the clouds. The spirit in Genesis 1 is hovering over the chaotic waters that need to be calmed and the creation that needs to be put into order. Genesis 6 pictures the floodgates of heaven being opened up as God is dealing with a world that has been ravaged by sin beyond control and the flood 
is sent in the days of Noah. The waters are parted by God in the Exodus. In the story of Job, where he is struck with so many ailments and troubles that he has no answer, it's in chapter 38 of Job that God comes in a storm cloud. How many times does God remind us that he's in control and we are not? And so here in the story of Jonah, you have the prodigal prophet who's caught in a storm. Firstly, God sends the storm. Secondly, the storm wakes him up. And thirdly, the storm directs him back to God, and just as it does for each one of us. We look at verse 4 as we pick up where we left off last week. Jonah is headed for Tarshish. He was told by the Lord to go to a city of Nineveh, a great city, a city notorious, not for how good it was, but for how wicked it was. And when Jonah heard that news, he did arise, only to head in the opposite direction. And he got on a ship bound for Tarshish, far away in some place like Spain. Verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us, that we may not perish. God sends the storm. You can imagine God in this story. He's standing on the clouds. And the the text says that he hurls a storm at Jonah. As if he's throwing a spear or a great big (coughs) snowball. Or perhaps a lasso would be more fitting. God hurls a storm because he has to remind us of where we've gone, that we're headed in the wrong direction, that we need something to stop us from all the nonsense we're chasing after and remember him, like when he sends lightning to strike out your internet service. He is the maker. Psalm 95 says that it is he who made us and not we ourselves. We didn't make ourselves. And we aren't in charge of the outcomes of our lives. He hurls the storm. And when the storms hit, life on the sea becomes difficult. Suffering becomes part of our lives. The disciples wondered similar questions when they got into this circumstance as we do. Is God really in control? It doesn't feel like it. Does God really care? In fact, that's the question they asked in Mark chapter 4. Jesus was asleep in the stern, just like Jonah. And the situation was out of control. And they said, don't you care? They woke him up. Doesn't he care? 
Won't he save you? Why is he letting this happen? That's an important question, in fact, why? That's a question that's born into our souls. It's part of us to ask the question, why? Job, in fact, asked that question. He debated with God. He had lost his property. He had lost his family. He had lost his health. And for 37 chapters of Job, he is asking this question, why? And he's trying to come up with answers. You see, not every situation of suffering is the same. And we shouldn't think everything is correlated in the same way. So there's different situations we get into with suffering that have different correlations. In the story of Job, there was, as far as Job could tell, seemingly no correlation between a specific choice or a sin that he committed and the suffering that he was enduring. It seemed to be disconnected. And yet in Jonah, it's directly connected to a sin of disobedience that he was responsible for. So it doesn't mean just because you're suffering or life is out of control that it perhaps is directly correlated, perhaps is not. I remember reading a news article on the wildfires in Canada. The wildfires are really bad this year. Some of us were up in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Some of you are from there. And you, you could smell the smoke, you could see it in the air in certain places. The wildfires in Canada were worse than I suppose they've been in history. And in the news article, it seemed to point to every possible cause. In one part, it was global warming and climate change that had caused more <coughs> fires this year. In another part, it was cuts to the forestry department, where they weren't able to fund as many controlled fires that would help prevent bigger forest fires. In another part, it mentioned carelessness of humans who leave campfires burning or who throw cigarette butts out the window, or even worse, people who do it on purpose. Of course, it didn't mention number four on my list, which is God. Lightning strikes that come directly from heaven and God can send as many as he wants. But in this story, you see there's four different correlations, okay? There's a global warming, global-wide sense of humans being responsible, which we could say is, is entwined reason. There's design, such as the cuts to the forestry department. If you cut funding to the department responsible for holding back fires, well, then there's a correlation there. If somebody throws a cigarette butt out the window or doesn't put out their fire before going hiking, there's a direct correlation there. And yet there's also God sending lightning. So which is it? Well, I'm not about to tell you. In the scriptures, it shows all four exist. There's big global entwinement with sin where all humanity is entwined in a cursed world where things are going to go wrong and we're all entwined in that. There's decisions made on a broader scale that affects not just one person but a bunch of people where maybe somebody 
did something that correlates to a disaster, and yet you were just there. You were just in Canada and couldn't help it. Or there's specific choices and decisions we make, sins we commit that have consequences that are correlated directly to the fires we set in our lives. But we should never forget number four. And in the story of Jonah, you see it all is connecting back to the same thing. In fact, all the scriptures are connecting back to God, the maker, the one we can never lose sight of. The center remains the same. God is telling humans to wake up. Whether you're directly responsible or you're not, he's saying, wake up. And this is what he tells Jonah. And he uses, of all people, a pagan, idolatrous sailor to come down and wake him up. Wake up, you sleeper. Arise, call to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So whether you're directly responsible or not, it doesn't mean just because God's in control doesn't mean that we have no responsibility. In fact, Jonah's got a responsibility. God is in control, but Jonah has a responsibility. And God has a purpose. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus confronts the Pharisees with a question. They're testing him about where he's come from, who he is, and they ask, they ask Jesus to show them a sign from heaven. And he says, when it is evening, you look to the sky and you say, it'll be fair weather, the sky is red. And in the morning, you say, it'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. So he left and departed. Jesus is rebuking the religious experts here. These are the men who are in charge of interpreting signs who are supposed to be the ones that are most knowledgeable about what God's doing and are supposed to provide answers to the people. They're supposed to instruct and lead them in God's will. And yet, these are the people asleep. These are the people who can do nothing more than go outside and say, well, uh, there's a thunderstorm. The lightning just struck outside my window, so I guess there's going to be a thunderstorm. I mean, they're no better than the weatherman that might be right 50% of the time. That's pretty good. Can we discern the relationship that we have with the Lord? When lightning strikes and it seems that all communication is knocked out, God seems silent. Do we know what he's trying to tell us? Maybe we need to take a break from the internet without God having to strike us with lightning, take a break from the screen and have a Sabbath. Have a time of listening. A time where we are calling on God, where we're awake and alert and trying to discern, well, what is he really telling us? 
and looking into his word. Even the sailors do it. The sailors who have no background in the Hebrew scriptures, who have no knowledge of the Lord as the one true God, it says they're calling on all the gods. If if there's any God out there who, who can help us now, they're each calling on their own God. The sailors knew how to discern the skies. They knew how to discern the weather. They knew how to call on all these different gods, but they didn't even know the Lord. And yet they knew more than Jonah at this point. Jesus says no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah, which means wake up. We read from Ephesians 5 in our text earlier, which says, arise, you sleeper. It's talking about stepping out of the darkness of our lives and into the light of God. Being exposed and being willing to and knowing that when we are finally exposed and the light shines on us, God is going to give us good things, not bad. Call upon your God. So the Lord is in control. It teaches us. He sends the storm. He wakes us up and then he leads us to call upon him, to bring our focus back to him. The sailors are looking for any spiritual power that will give them help. The captain says, perhaps the God, or more likely he says, plural, perhaps the gods will notice us. What will it take? We'll learn more about the sailors next week in our sermon, and who were these men, and how do they respond But basically, they're looking for anyone who will listen. Who will listen to their call? Because all the gods they've called on haven't listened. They turn to Jonah. Now, Jonah is very invested at this point. Not only has he decided which way he's going to go toward Tarshish, not only has he bought the ticket, but it says, in fact, that he paid her fare. Now, if you go back to verse 3, It says that when Jonah went down to Joppa, he found a ship. And the literal next sentence says he paid her fare. It doesn't say he paid the fare. In other words, Jonah's not just paying his own way. Jonah's paying for the whole ship. Jonah, as a prophet who has means and money, is sponsoring this whole voyage, which means all the cargo... The crew, the ship, they're all his. They're, they're all under his investment. Jonah is, he's invested all the way at this point. So if you were the one who had paid all this money to get on the ship, to pay for the voyage, and expecting a return on, on your profit, when you get to Spain, you're going to deliver all these goods, you're going to get paid back. And you wake up to these sailors who are hurling all of your goods overboard. How would you feel? Jonah is heading deeper and deeper into the red. The same word for hurl that says God hurled the storm down at them is the same word that says they hurled the goods overboard because the ship was going to sink. These storms that God allows to happen, they confront us with what really matters 
when life and death is on the line, we really realize what's important. It's why John Newton said, I'm unfit to live and unfit to die. He was confronted by that truth. And without the Lord, we are all unfit to live and we are all unfit to die. And it begins with the Lord teaching us to let go. That gold, that ivory, that lumber, you don't need it. Throw it overboard. When the Lord is trying to get us to turn around or pay attention to him, he has to teach us to throw things away. My wife has got this project going on at home this summer. She's purging. And every day I see something else has gotten to the door. Sometimes I see things I'm not sure I want to let go out the door. But ultimately, that's good for us. It's good for us to let go, to purge. Not just the clutter in our house, but the clutter in our mind, in our hearts, in our wallet. Jesus teaches his disciples this again and again when he calls the bunch of fishermen and he says, leave your nets behind. Or when he tells the rich man, there's one thing you still lack. Sell everything you have and follow me. Jesus is teaching us again and again, not just to wake up, but then to follow him. To let go. Perhaps a job is causing you to sin, the job you go to every day. Because you find yourself pursuing greed, or you find yourself angry, or it takes away time with your kids. Toss it overboard. Maybe it's Amazon shopping that is leading you into constant spending and coveting. Throw it over. Maybe it's looking into the mirror and constantly obsessing about your figure or your looks, throw it. Maybe it's even your phone that's tempting you to look at pornography. Throw it. Throw it overboard and call upon your God. And which God are we calling upon? Tim Keller in his commentary on this said, we naturally believe that we have far more ability to direct our lives wisely, more virtuous, more honest, more decent than we truly are. I was listening to an interview of one of the Vikings coaches. The Minnesota Vikings hired a new defensive coordinator this last year. In the offseason in February, they hired Brian Flores. And he was coming from Pittsburgh, but at the time, he had other offers. Arizona wanted to hire him as the head coach. And so when he came to Minnesota, everybody asked, well, why would you have taken a lower position? Why would you have taken this position as defensive coordinator when you could have been the head coach of a whole NFL team? And he was kind of going around his answers. He said, well, you know, there were a lot of factors. He said it was a gut decision. Then a little bit later in the conversation, he said, well, I was sitting in church and considering my options, and the pastor had a sermon. And in his sermon, he said, you can have control or you can have growth, but you can't have both. 
You can have control or you can have growth, but you can't have both. And for someone like Jonah and you and me, we like to go the control path where everything is figured out, spelled out, dotted out, and we are the ones in charge. And then God up and sends a storm and hurls it at us and then everything falls apart and we're tossing things overboard. Even the sailors are telling us to wake up. But then we have growth. When Jesus did finally awake from the stern of the ship, he was called up from his slumber. He, he needed to rest. Jesus came from heaven to earth, and he experienced everything like you and I experience it. The suffering, the struggle, the time, the energy, the patience needed to deal with people. And as time went on, he got tired at the end of the day. But he gets up from his slumber. He looks out over this tempestuous sea. And with just a word, it's calm. And he says, why didn't you trust me? In his time and in his way, Jesus will calm the storm. But there are times when he will let it rage. And he'll let it throw you around. And he'll let it teach you a few things. But know that he is the one with the power to allow it. And he's the one with the power to calm it. And more than anything else, he's concerned with your soul. Because he can let the storm rage outside. And he can let the waves crash. He can let circumstances fall completely out of control. And yet he can preserve what's within the calm of your heart. That's the stillness of Psalm 46 when God says, Be still and know that I am God. Amen.